listen, I've been thinking, I've been thinking, I've been just in this like mode of thinking about like David Brooks talks about like what happens when you reach like a plateau in your career and like climbing the second mountain, you know? And I was thinking like, what, what do you do <laughs> oh my God. if you are the magnate of a company that contracts with rental car agencies to manage the billing and payment of electronic highway tolls that rental cars incur. <laughs> and, you know, you've just spent like the, the biggest like creative energy of your life thinking about, you know, fleet list management and, you know, making sure that car renters end up paying their their highway tolls, which were imposed because the state couldn't raise revenue through other <laughs> forms. You know, this has been, this is like your, your, your youth that you've spent on this and, and so much of your creative time. What do you do? You know, how do you, what's the second mountain for you? And then, <laughs> then it occurred to me, it's probably like opening the school from Suspiria. Right. <laughs> it's like, you starting know, starting an anti-vax like, school. Yeah. Like, uh, just, a, Oh, what's in this room? Oh, uh, just razor wire. Maggots. Welcome to the Death Panel. If you'd like to support the show, please become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You get access to Monday's weekly bonus episode. This week, we sat down with Jules Gil Peterson again, which was fantastic. Oh, yeah. man, that was amazing. If you enjoyed the uh, previous time that Jules was on the show, which was a public episode, I highly recommend um, this this one mm-hmm. from Monday. It's very much sort of a... You could you could almost encounter it, it's very much its own thing, its own conversation, but you could definitely think of it as sort of a part two of that conversation. Uh, and we talk a lot more about the specifics of what is materially happening with these uh, anti-trans bills across the country. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fantastic conversation. So, yeah, patreon.com slash death panel pod. So moving on, <laughs> we're going to get into the you know topic that everyone actually wants to hear about in a second. But, you know, you have to like when you see joy in the world, you have to embrace it. Right. Like you've got to have a positive attitude to bring joy into your life. And and we did. And we found such a wonderful treat, which is this private school in Miami's design district called Sentner Academy, which has become like the Hogwarts of anti-vaxxers. God. Yeah. No, the I, I, I was keeping I keep thinking about like we have our sort of stable of characters and we have like the really goofy ones, like the boat guys, the Santa guys. You know, th- <laughs> these people are they're they're somewhat less colorful, but and, and in a way more malevolent. Uh, but they're definitely the wacky fascist tendencies are strong in this couple. Um, this is a, an unholy union of the Sentners. and like the this like came to my attention. I guess this is now sort of like a story that they've been. Uh, like running this school, promoting a lot of um, uh, just really baseless like conspiracy theories and like telling, <laughs> but essentially saying that they're going to fire teachers that get vaccinated. Yeah, uh, yeah and, but, and that yeah, there's but don't worry, they they're protecting the kids, they're keeping them away from the windows so they don't get poisoned by the five G. Yeah, so. and 
And also, like, telling the kids, this is how it came to uh, people's attention, which is that the children were told, if your parents or grandparents are vaccinated, do not hug them. So people were going home, like, I can't hug grandma. She's vaccinated. Um, so I, I was, like, thinking, like, where where does this or- originate from? Or, like, h- how do you... How do you get these these particular sort of types? And like, of course, they're like wired into the sort of right wing like network in Florida. That 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 much is obvious. But then it occurred to me, oh, there's a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. connection. And there absolutely is. Sentner is apparently a filmmaker uh, with RFK Jr. on a film that is on its surface about the Tuskegee experiments and oh about like the uh, sort of racist uh, experimentation in history, but is using that as like a plinth for anti-vax uh, sentiments. God, it is, it is unfortunately, I think, a dime a dozen in America to hear the story of like a private school being run by just a couple of, you know, eccentric rich people yeah However, i mean like who, who have made their money who have made their money in in sort of like siphoning and predating on like public uh like right. uh pu- right. public enterprises public like and, yeah, public from, from highway tolling then private schools that get uh like a di- funding diversions from the state government and the federal <laughs> government yeah it's this the circle is, of this life is a, really yeah it's the circle of life no maybe. no but i mean the specifics of uh what has happened here uh what what is her name Layla Sentner, uh, Layla Sentner, the like one of the one of the owners of this private school started a WhatsApp group called Knowledge is Key, mm-hmm. where she basically just started sharing a bunch of anti-vax stuff. And I, I love guess, how like in the, is key. in the reporting, they, they like made sure to emphasize, you know, well, it was like a voluntary WhatsApp group. But also all the teachers are under an NDA and they were also told if they get vaccinated over the summer, they should not even plan on coming back to work there in the fall. Yeah. So I, voluntary I think, is a very flexible yeah, vol- word. <laughs> what what kind of voluntary do you right. mean exactly? But uh, yeah, it's this. This is just like peak, you know, anti-vaxxer Mickey Willis pandemic you know, it's the it's the whole like if you go to her Instagram and she's got all these posts that are like, I'm being censored by the media for disagreeing with that saying things that don't fit their narrative. It's right. Yeah, yeah. It's the sort of like Instagram persecution aesthetic. You know what I mean? Where it's like lots of reposted videos, lots of bad infographics that are like way too small of images to have been posted. So they're really pixelated. This is so cool. I'm just wondering, like they, they say that like the school changed hands in like a day that like one day it was controlled by uh, another group of people and then it like changed hands overnight. And so I'm wondering like, did that also happen at the school in Suspiria? Like, like somebody calls them out like, yeah, everything was normal. And then like, for some reason the colors got very vibrant. Um, and they said that there was only like three teachers, mother's Suspiriorum, Lacrimalm and Tenebrow. Like, I don't know. There's some weird things going on here. That's exactly how it happened. Yeah. Uh-huh. You heard it here first. I do think, I mean, I think we should move on, but from, I think that the anti- one, vaxxers to health economists right but i you know i do think a lot of times when you hear stories about stuff like the sentinel academy or other you know a situation like this where it's just one particular you know privileged miami school become like a beacon for the sort of you know anti-vax covid skeptic uh community or whatever i think a lot of people question like why does this stuff happen or like how can for instance like tucker carlson go blithely up 
every night and you know mm. do covid skeptic stuff to a huge audience or whatever and you know i think probably frankly it has a lot to do with the fact that as justin feldman has pointed out According to the CDC, uh, so far, fewer than 5,000 college-educated white people under 65 have died of COVID. Right. So it is like, like, what is that? That's like, that, that is social murder. And that is also a, a something where I think, you know, these people can be blithe about it because to a certain extent, they are or have been, you know, insulated materially from the worst of the pandemic. And many of them are, you know, the people who... I don't know if they like if they did get sick could afford to even if the government wasn't subsidizing it currently could afford to like pay out of pocket for uh, MABs like a monoclonal antibody treatment or something to treat COVID. You know what I mean? I don't yeah, know. yeah they're deeply insulated. Yeah. yeah, right. It's it's helpful to think about like what under what conditions can people entertain such like bizarre fantasies? And it's like what conditions such as. There are no consequences, no, really no consequences for you believing them. I mean, right. that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Privilege is a Petri dish, I guess, <laughs> oh, God. both for ideology and also, I guess, biologically. Disease. Yeah. yeah, you gotta, you know, save the children, right? Yeah. Uh, Keep who, that degeneracy out by keeping that 5G out. <laughs> See, in um, the old money days, you just go to Switzerland, like a Thomas Mann novel. You just go to Switzerland, <laughs> like health spa. But now it's like, no, no, we want the disease. Then we want, you know, the health spa afterwards. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's why you uh, you get the disease and then you get to go to, you know, the sanatorium in the Alps and get a lot of the, the cold, refreshing air and... Uh, you know, wrapped in warm blankets. Yeah. And, exactly. uh, yeah, you know, yeah, maybe a salt soak. So it's <laughs> a hard pivot. Um, <laughs> so moving on, the U S has now, uh, announced through a trade representative that they will be supporting a form of backing a trips waiver. So we've talked a lot in past weeks about, the reluctance from the U.S. and from countries in the EU to support waivers to um, intellectual property rights for the vaccines. And it's it's a very complicated sort of international trade agreement. And the U.S. and other countries in the EU in particular have been really dragging their feet on this. And yesterday it was announced that the U.S. will support a waiver to the IP protections for the COVID vaccine, but there aren't a lot of details about it. And I think that there's been a rush to quick, uncritical celebration, but it there it's really difficult to actually understand what's going on. So I wanted us to like break down in depth today, like exactly what's happening because it's it's complex, but it's important to understand. Yeah. So it's it's worth thinking about it. Like there there's two, I think, important elements of this decision that that the U.S. announced yesterday. The first is that it is not support for the full waiver that India and South Africa proposed back in the fall, which would have been a waiver on all of the medical products related to uh, COVID-19, a waiver to all of their therapeutics, uh, everything. It's a much narrower waiver. That much we know, right? What we don't know. So we know that that's going to be like the bargaining point will not be mm-hmm. for like everything, but just for a, a narrow sort of slice related to the, to the vaccine, although exactly what that includes and doesn't include isn't clear. What is also not clear is the relation that the U.S.'s ability to like build a coalition 
uh, around this uh, uh, push. And like one way, just as a reminder, trips signatories, they don't like vote in a majority. They, they require like essentially unanimity to like move things forward. So the U S like went, uh, so obviously there's like a majority of countries already, uh, signatories already on board with this. Right. right? But it's been these few rich nations like holding the thing back. The interesting thing about this is like the U S didn't go forward by like sort of initially building a coalition. It sort of uh, went alone. And so then the question is like, what is the EU going to do? Um, mm-hmm. What are these other uh, sort of rich nations um, that have been um, sort of ho- holding back this agreement uh, going to do as well? And like, is this, in, in a sense, how deep does the Biden administration's commitment to this go? Are they willing to like go to the mat for this and like really build the coalition? Like that is, I think, a genuine question. Yeah, it's I think it's important. There's a, there's a lot of context here that I feel like we we kind of have to go through. So for one thing, um, yes, even though, uh, as I think, you know, be referenced, this is, you know, for instance, like uh, Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade representative coming out and saying the U.S. will support uh, a trips waiver. Again, we don't know what exactly that will entail. Her statement says that the U.S. will be actively involved in drafting the text mm-hmm. of uh, what will ultimately be advanced for vote uh, of of the waiver. That, to me, raises red flags immediately. Uh, you know, we can't just outright say, well, this is bad or this isn't what... Oh, we have to take the, the win here. We have to take a, like a win, a but win. be like, this is not... You know, I think it's really important that this... We have to acknowledge that this could be absolutely the kind of thing that is used to curtail further pressure to basically right. say, OK, we have to get ahead of this. We're going to do this. OK, now we can drag our feet a little bit. like the, the possibility is here for it. Now we can drag our feet a little bit. We'll make the final text really compromised. We'll make sure everyone, uh, you know, in, in pharma has a seat at the table, quote unquote, or, you know, can can sort of get what they want. Um and ultimately, this we, we will, you know, sort of steer this in a direction that ultimately doesn't challenge pharmaceutical companies' power or the U.S.'s power that they derive simply from, as we've talked about plenty before, simply from having sort of uh, instituted and having a huge stake in the sort of like global intellectual property regime. That being said, obviously, there was the quick thing that became quite memeable, which is that uh, just based, I think, on the... <laughs> like push notifications alone, uh, pharmaceutical stock prices, uh, dipped, um, the, uh, one of the, <laughs> one of the main talking heads of pharma, uh, Stephen Ubel said, uh, said something like, this is a dramatic about, fa-, you know, ba- basically said like, this is the, the, you know, Biden administration going against what it has said in terms of wanting to, uh, condolence it to help out American <laughs> innovation and jobs and blah, blah, blah. What, you know, the, the, like what else do you expect them to say really? Yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, it is, it is good. It's like on one hand, it's good to see those, those things happening, but also like what exactly do you expect to happen? And I would, I think there's a lot more for us to talk about here, but I do think that just one thing to underline from the very beginning is like, no, no matter how this is being framed from a lot of, uh, perspectives, this is sort of, a small win that portends like a much bigger well, fight. Right. The um, I, I think that the, the the narrative that's out there is like, OK, the the left in the United States pushed for this and Biden right. 
gave in to the left on this. It was just just like preposterous for a variety of reasons. There are international pressures on the U.S. to do this, too. And Biden like committed to do this. So, I mean, I think social social movement like pressure to some extent mattered. But but it's worth also thinking about like this is actually when the real fight begins. The Biden announces the Biden administration announces a position. And this is actually where the industry where industry has the most leverage Mm -hmm. um, is sort of like what the deep all of the technical details that are negotiated in a language that is really, really hard to translate uh, for most people, which I, I think we we need to do, because what the industry is saying now is like they're trotting out new arguments mm-hmm. for this. Like their argument in the past had been li- literally in bold text. This will hurt our uh, in, in innovativeness and competitiveness in the future. They, yeah. they were fine making this is like one thing we said the last time we talked about is like, yeah, they seem to be totally fine making that really just disgusting argument in public. Now, right. now they brought in the big guns. I don't know who their like better language drafters are, but they brought in <laughs> those guys like Tom and Rick or whomever. And uh, th- their new argument is that this move is going to backfire. It's going to have perverse consequences because by allowing more manufacturers to make shots, it's going to spark competition for new ingredients and slow down uh, production and create like a supply chain problem. That's their new uh, argument. And I, I want to like go through why that is, despite thank thank you, Tom and Rick, for trying, um, <laughs> why that is still uh, just utter, uh, utter bullshit. And, and you know, wh- why we, we, we should not be bound to thinking that is like a, a consequence for this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is this sort of constant paternalistic attitude that you see from pharma where they use the supply chain as this kind of device. Like they pretend like, oh, the supply chain is this like market force that we have really no control over. And it's this abstract concept that's just so big and vast. And we're merely, you know, uh, floating logs in the in the river of the supply chain, which like completely ignores the fact that, you know, a lot of the rules that have been set up to to control and regulate how that supply chain actually like works globally and who's allowed to produce what, um, you know, has been formed with pharma's thumb on the scale to produce favorable conditions to hoarding IP and hoarding like technology, right? So part of part of it is like that, you know, I think that they're often, you know, pretending that a lot of the things that that we actually could have control over from like a regulatory or political standpoint that we actually don't, that they're almost like laws of nature, which completely ignores the fact that if you change some of the rules about how this stuff can be made and imported and exported, like, you know, the supply chain issues would look a lot different. Right. Like the ultimate political move is pretending that our hands are tied uh, when they aren't like that's just the ultimate power move. But like, yeah, we've already used the Defense Production Act in the United States to deal with uh, bottlenecks in the supply chain, we like had to deal with J and J to like push the uh, uh, vaccine production up. Um, ventilators earlier in the in, in the pandemic, uh, there were supply chain issues there, and and we used DPA to like cut through those. Like, there is no reason why bottlenecks that might emerge might emerge. We don't even know where they would necessarily be. Uh, couldn't be dealt with uh, by the DPA. Uh, in the United States. So like well, that's that's just like one piece of it. Well, yeah, and that's only in the United States. That sort of line about, you know, supply chain is very much a global 
is very is very much talking about as you know as you guys are saying the supply chain is currently go globally constructed under the world trade organization uh, right. ru- like rules basically which are you know which are again largely governed by the trips council for which the waiver to which the waiver is being sought right right um right. and i think you know i as, as you're identifying phil there was this line for a long time uh, or there, there has been increasingly this line in the last 24 hours, but I think there were there were sort of seeds of it before of actually intellectual property isn't the, you know, quote unquote, isn't the problem. Because mm-hmm. really the thing is, like, if there was more supply of raw materials, if there were more places that could make these things, like if there were more factories that were capable of of manufacturing these things, then like there would be more, there would be more supply and it would be cheaper or something, which completely ignores how the, well, not, not actually ignores, which intentionally obscures really the right. way that the industry actually works, which is like, you know, for instance, if you look at the, if you look at the case of Pfizer, Pfizer has dramatically um, increased their manufacturing capacity for their mRNA vaccine doses over the last year. Could they continue to do so? I mean, absolutely. Will they? Uh, no, because actually, if you, I mean, if you, even if you look at um, just like very public industry analysis, there's a level at which basically material investment in the footprint of manufacturing facilities becomes like over time more of a sort of uh, loss on investment because from from a from a pure like capitalist business perspective, right? Mm-hmm. You can ramp up gigantic like for as 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 private industry, right? You can ramp up huge amounts of manufacturing capacity and then once you've filled all of those doses, right? Let's say let's say Pfizer alone as a private company ramps up capacity to to vaccinate the entire world within a year which i mm-hmm. honestly think that unfortunately they at the that company operates at such a scale that they could fucking do that mm-hmm. after that point though you have huge diminishing returns on all of this overhead that you just have established for yourself in having all of these manufacturing facilities right so from a perspective of private industry just just on a pure fucking you know the the market logic that everyone says is going to save the world <laughs> in this situation the market logic completely fails us because instead of saying you know whether it's the defense production act in the US or you know other thing uh, other things in other countries you know some combination of like compulsory licensing and you know uh, like ramping up some sort of public manufacturer for example of uh not just mrna vaccines but any other type of vaccine uh like the adenovirus yeah like uh like adenovirus vaccines like the j&j and astrazeneca ones like all of those could be ramped up as effective public enterprise and the materials and all of that supply chain stuff could also be organized internationally for that. We don't have a system for that though, because our entire system is predicated on, you know, defend, like defending the right of things like Pfizer and, you know, all, all of these other big pharmaceutical companies to exist and to hold back the, you know, the capabilities of producing these things. Right. And, and when you hear the like pharma reps say like, you know, if we could, we would do it, right? right? If we could expand production, if we could, you know, increase the supply without a 
without having these huge bottleneck issues in the supply chain, we would already be doing that because I guess what the assumption is that they're like the 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 world's sort of Santa Claus biopharmaceutical <laughs> like goodwill is the only thing that they're tasked with like spreading throughout the universe or whatever. But you know what they're doing is that they're lumping in the like technological constraints to the supply chain and the socially constructed constraints to the right. supply chain. And they're saying that those two things are the same and they're not. Yeah. I mean the other argument that I here on, on this on this particular point, like we would if we could, you know, health, health economists, you know, completely neutral uh, observers with no blinders at all, as we know, um, you know, we'll say like, well, it, it, it would be profi- profitable. Uh, why would they not try to seek additional profits if, if they could? But, you know, that, that, that really fails to take into account like what the costs would be for them of like standing up uh, new production lines and like uh, whether or not, in fact, that it would be as profitable as as they might want it to be, uh, given their given their balance sheets. So like it's 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 entirely possible that it, it doesn't make sense for like Pfizer, for example, to do to you know just sort of expand uh, sort of limitlessly. And, and you know clearly we've seen with the the contracts that Borla has like forced country you know the conditions in, in in which Borla has sort of like forced countries to, to sign these contracts, they have no they have no desire to do that. Yeah. that. That's not part of their business model. I mean, if you look at the business model of companies like Pfizer in particular, you have a company with a really diverse portfolio. They've got the simple compounded medications. They've got plenty of medicine technology, delivery technology, therapeutics, biologics, vaccines. They've got a really diverse portfolio. They have contracts all over the world, right? And and Phil, you're exactly right that that it doesn't necessarily behoove them to actually produce at world scale. What they pretend though, and I think that's part of the game of the the sort of IP regime, is that, you know, when they evaluate what the potential market of a drug is going to be, that they're looking at the t- like entire global population, but they absolutely aren't. They're looking at specific markets when they try and determine whether or not a drug is worth investing in. They're not looking at India as a market. They're not designing drugs for the global South. They're looking at the United States and Europe. So when they conceive of what their production capacity is and when they conceive about whether or not something is worth the investment and they're trying to analyze what the potential population pool could be for a drug, and you see this all the time with rare diseases, is they're only looking at very specific countries. And those are exactly the countries that are you know, holding and dragging their feet in opposition, supporting the pharma position because, but there's this kind of myth that like pharma, you know, that their capacity is based on this sort of global initiative, but it's absolutely not. Yeah. And I think in addition to all of this, that's one of the reasons why you see um, another thing in the last, in really, again, in the last week, uh, amplified in the last 24 hours or, or less since the, since the, uh, this announcement was made uh, about the, about the trips waiver, people who are kind of shilling for pharmaceutical companies or for the sort of or or more generally for the sort of standards of the current um, current intellectual property regime uh, people like Bill Gates for example or or others like really other just random people in op-eds frankly saying things like uh, well intellectual property alone isn't going to <laughs> solve it which is basically a reduction an entire reduction of what is actually really being called for in the trips waiver because the trips waiver fight was always about the first thing is that like the 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 first order thing 
asked for, and I'll, I'll get into more specifics on this in, in a little bit, but like, you know, it is to ask the WTO essentially to just go go ahead and preemptively allow for uh for you know countries to do compulsory licensing whether to companies or to public manufacture right of uh, vaccines and therapies um the sec that second part the actual you know implementation manufacturing and all that stuff is equally important but the demands of the trips waiver like the public demands of the trips waiver have been in at least some circles, uh, including in some press accounts and some major press accounts in the U.S., flattened to simply, oh, these people just want patent protections re- repealed. Um, and you see this in specifically there's a there's like a, a big uh, stat news article up on this, um, like dropped like clockwork this morning, <laughs> essentially mm. saying, aha, careful what you had wished for uh you know it's more than just patents to you'll it will take more than just breaking patents to solve capitalism's fiendish trap and it is all about this the stuff gotcha, that is, no one asked for right and it is all about this um muddying waters on supply chain questions on uh actual manufacture doing repeating lines that we've debunked on the show before about like, oh, well, like and things that, uh, you know, Bill Gates has recently as recently as I think two weeks ago has repeated of, well, you know, and Fauci repeated this week right. actually saying, uh, oh, technology transfer. You know, that would take 18 months oh, it's too hard. Um, the so-called waiving the patents is that by the time you then get set up to get the technology transferred to other countries to be able to do it, you may be going into the end of 2022, the beginning of 2023. Whereas we know oh. from public disclosure documents, there's like some technology transfer has completed in as little as two months. The maximum is like six months for some of the mRNA vaccines to yeah. get from for a full factory conversion, full factory conversion, top to bottom technology transfer start to, to start producing these things. Right. And so, on month seven, they were producing stock. Yeah, too, by the exactly. way, it, exactly. <laughs> so, no. And, and it's like all of this, all of this little like this dance that pharma does, the the, the scale illusion, the um, generosity illusion, and even the way that you see like pharmaceuticals portrayed in their relationships to like global NGOs and the sort of nonprofit medicine industrial complex where you you have this perception that that pharma touches all continents and reaches all people, right? And it absolutely does not. And it is very unequal in how it does distribute itself across the world. And all of these arguments at the end of the day are to sort of push and solidify the idea that the status quo is the absolute best that we can do. And we are just doing our very best. And it's the sort of charity model of pharmaceuticals where, you know, we're just making the money we're entitled to while we're saving the world. And that's not how it has to work. Right. I mean, that's more like pharma will go to wherever it can secure profit, right? Right. And yeah, it'll avoid it. What's the old line by the c- former Citibank president? Capital goes where it's welcome and stays where it's well treated. That's like <laughs> that's, very yeah, much there it yeah. Is. Yeah. very much the logic. Yeah. And I mean, like, so one of the, like, there a lot of people do buy into the false scarcity that that pharma projects right they they do buy into the idea that you know there are limited resources that pharma is already employing to the best of its abilities um to to accomplish this sort of global public health goal but wouldn't that mean therefore if you just threw enough money at pharma that they would you know service the global south or no, service just like those how countries. the affordable care act totally works 
Right. Yeah. Like, what like, a, like they'll, what they'll, fig- they'll figure it out. Like they're smart. Like we have money, and th- they only do responsible things with with the money that we give them with no strings attached. So yeah. they'll figure out the price point. <laughs> they will figure I mean, it out. What, what that does rhetorically, of course, is like reinforces the idea that this is sort of that access to medicine isn't a right or something that people deserve as you know, existing in this in the world, but that it's a uh, a charity that rich countries give to poor countries, right? If it's this kind of like, oh, well, we, if we just subsidize the shit out of Pfizer, Pfizer will give vaccines to the world. That's not that's not how it works. And if you look at the history of the pharmaceutical industry, particularly in the ways that it's developed since the 1980s, like mid to late 1980s, especially. If you consider the fuckery that like went down during the HIV AIDS crisis with global access there and like the ways in which pharmaceutical companies seriously blocked retroviral drugs being manufactured, distributed and developed in other countries, just literally using the argument of um, it's too hard for these poor people to do what we do. And um, we're already doing the best we can. If we could do it, we would. And you see these arguments come up again in the context of COVID. And you're saying basically that they honed these arguments during the HIV AIDS crisis, which is right. obviously still ongoing. I don't want to sound like it's a retroactive it's thing. Over, I hate yeah. that framing. But, yeah. you know, yeah, which is it's not over. And if you if you look at pharma's behavior since that those arguments, which they largely, I think, won with the support of the United States, with the support of Europe, who really did back them up in this. You know, they it doesn't really matter if people can pay. It doesn't really matter if you throw money at pharmaceutical companies. They're still going to design, market and distribute to these um, global north like rich superpowers, because that is what they're tailored to do as an industry. That's what their goal is. Right. And and then the argument that they make, it actually makes the argument that they make uh, about why trips won't work even even sort of more comical, because essentially what they're saying is like, oh, these uh, poor countries can't uh, stand up manufacturing. And it's it's the equivalent of saying, like, why do you keep hitting yourself? Uh, because they're like, wh- how can they stand up manufacturing where there where there is huge legal risk uh, for doing so? I mean, this is, you know, the uh, the idea that you could as a country like get an exception to Article 31 of trips just belies no understanding of how Article 31 works because it's this huge like procedural morass. Um, right. You have to like go patent by patent. You can't issue like any sort of blanket license for IP it's 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 an impossible it's it's like in there as window dressing you can't really use it effectively so it's like oh we, we created this cage why can't you get out of it uh why why, why do you seem so incapable of getting out of it <laughs> right and it, it, this is exactly a very good example of what i was saying about sort of collapsing the technological limits and the socially constructed limits into one thing and pretending like that is what it is and that's the truth because when CEOs and like reps from Gavi and PHRMA are like out there saying, well, you know, this is just really too hard and and these countries can't do it by themselves. Well, that's not what anybody is is saying. They're kind of relying on this myth that by waiving trips, each country will set up its own hermetically sealed end to end production facility for vaccines. 
right? This is a conception that a lot of people come to me and this is like the impression that they're under is what we're asking for is in waiving trips, every country gets to set up its own Pfizer. And that's actually not really how it works. And that wouldn't necessarily be the most efficient way to actually go about scaling global production. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, okay, I may, maybe actually we're getting to a point where I think it's good to, it's good to kind of zoom out on this yeah. uh, for, for just a second. Cause I think we've talked a lot about the the discourse surrounding you know, like the the sort of like industry reactions and and how I think a lot of this uh, the messaging is going to get like really muddled, but it's important to really consider something that I think is really left out of the conversation a lot, which is what really on a more on a, like a slightly more granular level is going on here. For like first first of all, to back up even further, like. The the U.S. trade representative at least saying they, that we will you know quote unquote support a trips waiver uh, right I mean first first of all I just want to acknowledge I think already that's something that we didn't expect to happen I mean yeah. I got the push notification while I was literally working on a piece on research for a piece that uh, we're writing for the new inquiry about this whole situation and I was just like I have to stop I have to I have to put my phone down and just wait and see what everyone says and see how this plays out because I did not, we, I don't think any of us expected this exactly. No. And the, but so the thing is like, what is, okay. We've, we've talked about the, the production, the, like, you know, how, how trips waiver is not just about the IP, but the production stuff also, but even more fundamentally, like, I think it's really important to acknowledge why the trips waiver is what is being sought so when India and South Africa did this joint move forward, like what is actually the what what is what is the reason why this is the procedural way through it? You know, we've talked about how we need like the WTO needs uh, needs like a, a pretty sizable majority of countries to to vote uh, to get this to happen, and the U.S. and a couple of other uh, other stakeholder countries essentially are keeping this from even advancing to the general floor for a mm-hmm. vote, but. Uh, or were at least until un- until maybe whatever that happens here. But it's important to understand, like again, why this is why this is happening. So the I think something like that isn't repeated enough about the trips waiver is the so the way that the WTO currently works, right? Individual countries do not, in fact, need a waiver to mm-hmm. the trips agreement in order to begin doing something like either really domestically manufacture either domestically manufacturing. Uh, something like the COVID vaccine or really any, any patented, any, well, really any patented anything, but like, let's say any patented vaccine or therapeutic or whatever. So under, under WTO laws, any individual member nation does actually have the legal right under international law to force a compulsory license of, let's say again, for, for example, a drug. Mm -hmm. Uh, like one of the COVID vaccines. So they could do that. So then the question is, why hasn't that happened? Right? Why hasn't India or South Africa said, okay, we're member nations of WTO. We're going to go ahead and, you know, file a compulsory license and uh, get, do it end you know, to get, end ourselves. Do it yeah. end to end ourselves, get technology transfer to happen and, you know, uh, and manufacture a whole bunch of vaccine. Right? Why has that not happened? Well, you may recall from a recent episode that we did, I, I told the story of, uh, I think it was the episode, The Innovator's Dilemma, a patron episode, a uh, recent one. I mentioned the story of a, a previous time when a compulsory license uh, was 
was done uh, in India for a cancer drug called serafinib owned by oh, Bayer. Bayer, right? yeah. Uh, yes. So I think what happened in this instance, which I, I kind of, I, I mentioned in that episode, I mentioned like uh, the story of how like, you know, later the Bayer CEO you know, basically, basically went out and said about a year later, like we quote, we developed this drug for Western patients who can afford this product, unquote, and saying, you know, basically saying that what India did was theft. But I think um, the story, the story actually gets like a bit more granular. And that's that India. So like what, what happened in this situation? Right. And what happens when a country does that? Like, why do these countries not do that? Because what happens when you just file a compulsory license, even though WTO rules allow you to legally do it, is among other things. First thing that happens, well, what did, what did Bayer do to India? Bayer sued India in international <laughs> court. They got dragged into a long, extremely expensive legal battle in international court. What else happened? Um, basically, even though India ultimately won that lawsuit, the United States marshaled its powers to chastise India, like ultimately threatening fucking sanctions against them because of doing this one compulsory license for a single cancer drug. So there is a great... And they won the case against them too, even after they... They had the the shit sued out of them. Yeah, I promise I keep this brief, but it's uh, I want to call it this is a partially from a timeline compiled by Medicine Sans Frontier, which is basically this this is what happened, and this is remember this is all happening this all happened in around 2012 to 2014 under Obama. So same you know same difference basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, so March 2012, before the license even goes through and the end is like court approved or or there's a court battle over it. March 2012. Just two weeks after India declares that it will seek a compulsory license for serafinib, Bayer's drug, Bayer's cancer drug, Obama's U.S. Commerce Secretary John Bryson goes to New Delhi to meet with India's Minister of Commerce and Industry and says that uh, pharmaceuticals are a competitive, like basically sends the message pharmaceuticals are a competitive area for the United States. Quote, any dilution of the international patent regime is a cause of deep concern to the U.S. So this is a warning <laughs> two weeks after. Right. Yeah. Three months later, June 2012, the deputy director of the United States Patent and Trademark Office goes before the U.S. House of Representatives and complains that the compulsory license issued by India was a, quote, violation of the TRIPS agreement, despite the fact that it is absolutely legal under the TRIPS agreement, right? Ultimately, May 2013, India is placed on a priority watch list by the United States, on which it stays for several years, ultimately ending in, like, in in 2014, it's brought up again for review, um, which is essentially there when you're on a when you're a country on a priority watch list by U.S. trade representatives. That means like we are considering sanctioning you is the is the idea. So extreme just for making a cancer drug. Right. June 2013, the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Commerce and Energy uh, has a has a hearing specifically on Indian IP trade policy called, quote, a tangle of trade barriers, how India's industrial policy is hurting U.S. companies, at which a bunch of people from including like Pfizer testify. July 14th, 2013, (sighs) Vice President Joe Biden (laughs) speaks at the Bombay Stock Exchange 
and says, quote, protection of intellectual property was a tough is a tough challenge for trade between the U.S. and India and has become an obstacle in the business environment. So basically, like (sighs) this is all my my point is there are a lot like this. The U.S. is itself a stakeholder in this. I would not expect the same people who marshaled the power of the state to protect their precious pharmaceutical companies to come to the table on good, uh, on like a good resolution for this. Thus we need to have extreme pressure. Yeah, exactly. This is, and this is the thing is that now because of the complexity of some of these negotiations, this is where the, just the information, information like asymmetries that, always advantage uh, pharma come into play. And this is also why the sort of coverage that, I mean, I I don't like doing like riffs on like media criticism because generally I feel like that's missing a lot of how power is actually exercised. But, but in this, but in this case, the, the kind of coverage that simplifies these issues uh, and, and sort of ignores how waivers actually work and ignores the stakes and, you know, and to some extent, there, there are limits on what one can do because these negotiations can be so sort of secretive. But like there is a lot of, I think, misinformation ab- about this. And it is influenced in no small part by the uh, PR efforts uh, of pharma to sort of construct what uh, these negotiations uh, well, it, it obscures the actual issue by uh, by omission. Right. right. And, exactly. and redirection, too, because and I, I think it's that's what's always it's important to keep in mind the things that these CEOs and these companies have actually said about themselves. I really I am glad you brought in that timeline already because it like it does show, OK, well, maybe this uh, pledge from the Biden administration to uh, intervene in trips is not the uh, catch-all good thing that we thought it was because you could also see it as part of this defensive strategy to make sure that under immense global pressure to do something that whatever happens is not unfavorable to pharma at the end of the day. Because regardless of what actually comes of the U.S.'s commitment to a TRIPS waiver, it's going to be sold as a fix. Like, we know that. Right. They're going to sell it as a fix. Pharma is going to sell it as a fix. The U.S. is going to sell it as a fix. Everyone will be on or, message. Or pharma will do cro- crocodile tears. Right. Probably. Or probably. Yeah. yeah. Right. That would be the right. smart move. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll do both. They'll do both. They'll, they'll do crocodile tears and they'll do things like, you know, Borla is saying that he's donating however many uh, yeah. shots to uh, to India and other things like they're already they're already in the sort of defensive posture where they're saying, look, we're, we're, we're making um, concessions. We're making concessions. Uh, please, please, sir. Please, mister. Like, don't hurt me anymore. Like, meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, your friend is, is around the corner in the alley with a big knife. You know, like that's the, you know, um, I think uh, kind of logic that they're that they're approaching and the thing is the the way that it works is like the pre- the pressure only lasts as long as it appears that a deal is not done once a deal is done there will be press releases that talk about the benefits uh, for India and uh, and other countries um, but it will be like the the salience of the issue will drop off and so that that's why this is sort of like it's important to figure out like what is the what is the line here that they're going to try to take to avoid actually uh, making a, making a binding commitment to this. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I think what we're seeing in real time is the sort of a management of 
uh, what the response will be. They're trying to, pharma's trying to now shape, they've been resisting having to deal with their ownership of this property regime and their role in it and their investors' role in it. Um, I think they've brought, they've been brought to a position where they're, you know, feeling forced to have to acknowledge it. You have some action. It is like the absolutely, this is the most important time to apply pressure now because it's now that there's this sort of commitment that, okay, something's going to happen. What, what actually happens and what is sold and what that means is, is going to be really important in how the pandemic continues to play out. Like you have stories in the US media that are burying stories about this trips situation and India that are celebrating record low infections in the United States. You know, if you open up a paper, you're going to see um, you're going to see this representation of priorities. Right. And where this is on a priority list has now been dropped down several rungs for a lot of people because it doesn't necessarily represent the same um, pressing, obvious uh, misconduct. Right. And I and I think that's what worries me is that and, and this is just, I think, mostly informed from looking at how public outcry has fizzled out whenever um, HIV AIDS uh, retroviral drug access has like come up either in the UN or the WTO or in Congress. You have all this pressure and we still have like horrific access problems all around the world. The HIV AIDS crisis is not over, not even in the U.S. South, right? Access to HIV AIDS treatment in Georgia versus in the Northeast is like two completely different levels of care. And constantly when you have the the public pressure, there are these moves that are made to release that pressure. And we need to refuse right now, ultimately. And that's what I worry is going on is that there's this strategy to kind of diffuse and roll back some of the outrage so that they can preserve the property regime that pharma enjoys. Yeah. I mean, and this is the thing. This is what is what is actually the, the important demand that can that is in uh, some of the, some of the mouths of the people who are are demanding a trips waiver. But it also, uh, I think, should should be part of, I think, more of the discourse of what the what the trips waiver is actually about is we do need you know we do need a wholesale reformation of the entire way we fund develop and manufacture uh these things not just covid vaccines obviously but like uh therapeutic drug, drugs of all kinds um and we need for that new regime to be aligned with the interests of global he decommodifying health and extricating health from capital right i mean right. the to reduce calls for the trips waiver simply to uh, oh, so what you want to market free for all, you know what I mean? Cause like to just, just saying to reduce it to, to breaking the patents is essentially to say, okay, so anyone, so then you're, you're essentially saying, okay, we'll, we'll let there be generic production and let the market decide, right? That is not the idea. That's not the idea here, right? This is not like a libertarian project. This is, uh, in its like most essential form, you know, a, a call to completely shift the way that we conceive of, the public responsibility for health. Right? And this is or it not should some be. Like, or it should be. That's what we should be. That's what we well, should that's, be. That's what we, like, the death panel. What, no, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, about, just I think in general, like if, if you don't, I have a very hard time believing that if you don't take away from this, they're like, w- one of the things that's, that allows that, uh, that allows you to not learn anything is by not really thinking about the deaths as deaths by just sort of like pushing them into history 
into the past and building a rhetorical monument on top of them. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, and, and that that's a way to just have the same thing happen again. Um, the, the thing that we should learn is for a variety of reasons related to a variety of policies that that uh, the United States, other countries have taken, uh, these deaths were preventable. Uh, we do not need to be seeing this sort of uh, crisis uh, ongoing. And we have to, like, at some point, like, learn a lesson from that. But it, ta- it it requires, like, actually taking the consequences of these things seriously. Right. Yeah. And it's not like there aren't models for how to do this, right? There are. They exist. There are parts of the WHO that exist to deal with the flu globally. Like, the way that we responded to the H1N1 and H5N1 flu viruses before they were even known to be transmissible between humans and the way that we manage the annual flu vaccine and the the management of the flu biome and how they decide which which strains are going to become the vaccine each year. There's already an existing model um, of how to do this absent of this property regime that pharma is saying is absolutely necessary. And it's like, well, no, that's a lie. And yeah. it's important to keep their own words in mind when you're looking at the stuff and you're evaluating, like keep in the back of your bullshit meter um, the things that Borla has said, the things that the CEO of Bayer says about who deserves access to their their property, really. Yeah. Um, who has the right to buy their property? Um, who has the right to life in their opinion? And, and keep that in mind when you're looking at these and what comes out about this, because it's really important to 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 keep their own words at the front of your thoughts because they tell on themselves over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And the thing that you're ta- the example that you're giving with influenza, by the way, um, if anyone's in- interested in that, there's a great paper by uh, Amy Kapsinski from Yale. Amy, um, come on yeah. that panel. Who's uh, or which is called uh, Order Without Intellectual Property Law, Open Science in Influenza in which she coins, I think she coined it, uh, she coins the term the bell curve of property law. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Explain. That's a good love concept. it. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure we'll get into that concept in the future uh, some more. But yeah. um, I think I, 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 you know, I think we should, um, I think we're getting towards the end, but I do have, I do have a little uh, palate cleanser for you guys if you snack. will okay. indulge me. Um. I just thought it would really fit the theme of what we're talking about today to just consider for a moment a a perspective, an opinion, if you will, um, from the Financial Times from the other day. This is like going to the bakery and like they give you a a white box and you don't know what sort of delectable (laughs) is inside. What will it be this time? I always try to bring a little joy with the pain. And uh, for the for people listening, there is we have outlines for the show. And on this outline, I think it just says like <laughs> topic Artie's secret. And then just like you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. That's how I've, I've completely you. shielded these. I've com- completely shielded the other two people in this podcast from the it's content. It's like a game show where we're, deliver, we're so. in like a sealed box. Somewhere. Yeah. So this is a column from Janan Ganesh in the Financial Times uh, called Globalization and Its Mistaken Discontents. <laughs> and it's about <laughs> the <Okay>. private market. <clears throat> it's short, so I might actually read the entire thing. Oh my God. It begins. I'm a joker. I'm oh. a smoker. No. I'm a no. midnight toker. No. I get my lovin' on the run. 
to relax us, the District of Columbia's health authorities infused this vaccination center on the banks of the Potomac with the soft rock stylings of Steve Miller Band. There I am, post-jab, left deltoids swabbed, so calm as to take Pfizer's world-changing marvel for granted as it teaches my cells new tricks. Oh, shut up. But then I have grown accustomed to private sector feats over the past year. (laughs) We all have. And that is the problem. All right. Everyone's addicted to (laughs) private sector collaboration. Everyone's grown Mm. accustomed to private sector success. Sucking on the teat of innovation. If in April 2020, someone had given you a preview of the subsequent 12 months, what would have struck you about global supply chains? How badly they (laughs) fared or how eerily well? The physical confinement of much of the planet's workforce should have ended consumer life as we knew it. Instead, my Amazon order history for the past year is a brimming souk of earphones, electric corkscrews, masks, burgundy glasses, phone chargers, Richard E. Grant memoirs, Uh, hypoallergenic bedding, sono speakers, masala chai, and ink cartridges. With a mode if median delivery time of 48 hours. No, no, no. I I hate this person. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I hate this this man too. This is the guy that the condo board is like, yep, he's one of us. (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely like, he's the final boss to defeat in a co-op board interview. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, No, He he wants to see, you have to submit your Amazon history when you apply for an apartment. (laughs) Yeah. You know, people people talk about people having a punchable face, but he has a punchable prose. Um, <laughs> yeah, this 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 prose style is like. Also, notice we're like we're like two paragraphs in, have no idea because somebody's like, you know, when you write a delayed lead, maybe keep it to like three, four sentences. Maybe this, like, this is ba- this whole article is basically a delayed lead where he's just kind of assuming you're with him on the private sector. It's thing, like when so. someone puts a poem in front of an essay and then the essay never references the poem. Right. He continues, Apple got a MacBook to me in 90 minutes. Nothing I would normally eat or drink has been missing or even rationed in either restaurants or supermarkets, and my tastes tend to the Baroque. Okay. I close my eyes when I pass houseless people on the street. <laughs> I'm essentially an Edgar Allan Poe villain with a large sort of like cabinet of horrors yeah. within. I've, I have not experienced this pandemic as any, any sort of distress, but only as delightful yeah. Deliciousness. <laughs> he's just fallen out of time and he's like waiting to uh, quantum leap back into a Hitchcock movie or he's something. He's just saying yeah. like he's opened his third eye and embraced cannibalism. <laughs> back, back to his uh, work. These are not wonders unique to a nation that makes a deity of the customer. <laughs> Though Europe has, was locked down to an extent and for a duration that Americans struggle to fathom, it scores just as well for sheer availability of stuff. Quote, they have everything, (laughs) reports a friend, homing in on the core food groups at a reopened tapas place in Marleybourne. Argentine rosé, quince tart, dulce de leche, the private sector has surpassed itself. And so... Uh, Is that a text he got? Like, if a friend texted me that, I, I might not... I, the, I really might like not the ever respond who makes to you, you again. leave the group chat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not only apparently it's not only in his columns that he writes like this. He also does that because I guess his friends write him pretentious text messages, too. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, sorry. OK, so he says uh, so he's quoted his friend saying the private sector has surpassed itself. <laughs> 
And so, in profound ways, it has. The past year is going down in received opinion as a chastening one for globalization. What? Shortages, some of them in goods as life or death as personal protective equipment, warranted that view early on. The more recent crisis in semiconductors and other business-to-business gizmos is a drag on the recovery, but the fact that it is easy to name most of these pinch points attests to their relative rareness. Relative, that is, to both the sum of products in the world and to popular and to popular expectations as the pandemic started. Oh, what about the, sh- the shortages of the lupus drugs caused <laughs> by uh, the run on hydroxy chloroquine yeah my guy just saying in most problem areas supply caught up with freakish demand which is why masks are no longer are no longer truffle rare and even while the blockages remained they did not prima facie discredit the system entire for that you have to believe that things would have been better in a more autarkist world you have to believe that nations would have stored up essentials or the means of making them to meet a once in a century contingency what sweet faith no 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 no, no, no. <laughs> so he's basically like uh you 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 call yourself a critic of globalization but uh well what if the only alternative to that was like walled uh adamantine like cities where we're just like hoarding <laughs> like oh my god this is Oh, this is like a really bad undergraduate op-ed. Oh <laughs> my god! And like a really leads, and like and, no, no, like uh, like it's worse than that. It's like an it's like an op-ed <laughs> written at this whatever the school paper is at like Eaton. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're gonna like the next thing then. Um, the immediate lesson of the pandemic was the frailty of modernity. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate lesson no 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 might no, be its no. underrated resilience <laughs> yes i'm just sitting i'm sitting here you know in my wing-backed chair yes. with your baroque niceties <laughs> no what was the immediate lesson of the pandemic for you percy uh death uh, public health no no private sector uh, the the deliciousness of the modern and the frailty <laughs> of the modern That's as right. well. The Financial Times really said, we have always been modern. Um, <laughs> we have lived through, and in too many cases failed to live through, a world historical trauma. But we have also seen miracles of robustness and ingenuity, and they go well beyond bioscience to the very webbing of the economy. It is not complacent to say so. The opposite, pessimism about the system, is the real invitation to future trouble. Oh, he so did let me not. get this. Okay. Now there's there's the old school like Steven Pinker, like th- <laughs> things are just getting better argument, which clearly right. um our our colleague here has uh kept closely at the bedside for many years. Um and <laughs> but instead of just doing that, no no no. He's going to add a twist, I see, which is it's not merely that things are getting better, but the only thing that could be a problem is if we complain about anything. I right. see. That's, that's well, the twist if we on the genre. complain about and then that and then if we complain about anything and then that leads us somehow to I guess what he's saying is planned economies or whatever or socialism or no, 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 don't spoil doing it things me. in Keep public. Going. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> Uh, I don't, I mean, I, I'm just saying that's kind of what he's, I, I think that's what he's getting at. He actually doesn't get super explicit about that. No, um, I wouldn't think so because this is just sort of like they filled him up with foie gras and they like to <laughs> type something for us. 
young yeah. Master Percy or whatever, and then just like it, spats it's really, out. It's really a vibes piece. It's just to fluff up the aesthetics of, you know. The, it's like um, it's like the COVID diary aesthetic. <laughs> um, so we're, we're getting towards the end here. In the first episode of Civilization, <laughs> Kenneth Clark, at his most languid, gives a few reasons oh, for the fall of the ancient world before majoring on one. Confidence, or rather the loss of it, is what he says undid Rome. <sighs> Confidence. Without belief in its philosophy, a culture becomes suggestible to outside subversion, its own foolish experiments, or just decline through neglect. Is this guy a life coach? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like positive mental attitude. I'm okay. You're okay. Life coaching. Where well, you, you know, you, you abolish negativity because it's, you know, your negative worldview and the fact that you're complaining, it's not that you're, you know, naming the material threats against your life. You're <laughs> complaining and should have a positive attitude. I think, yeah, I mean, I think by, uh, I, I think he's trying, he's trying, he's straining extremely hard to tell a lesson about how the United States and American and European powers should adhere to, or how world powers, I guess, should adhere to the again quote belief in its own philosophy in their own philosophy as in the philosophy of capitalism (laughs) and market uh market rules i mean this has the flavor of the 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 problem with millennial finance is that they love avocado avocado toast yeah, yeah totally globalization though clark would have loathed the desiccated term has been the philosophy of the greater part of the world for the greater part of my lifetime After a year-long stress test in which it scored more respectably than all but the serenest optimists could have hoped. Excuse me? (laughs) Jesus. The result is by American, as in purchase, by American, just in case and the conflation of a slapstick farce in the Suez Canal with some inner sickness of the world order. What? As confidence wanes... I'm so glad that Financial (laughs) Times is just publishing people's diary entries now. (laughs) Um, As confidence wanes, don't be sure that the result will be a wisely reformed system or anything so coherent as a system at all. This reads to me like the emails that we get that are like, it's very rude of you to to, to question made, intellectual property or to have made fun of Bill Gates's sweaters. God, this guy. No, I mean, this guy. No, this is no. This is really no. This is excellent because I love. They're very rare thing that you know. It's like what do you see them in like uh, Julio Cortazar stories where the person is writing the thing, <laughs> but then ultimately they're like in the thing, um, or like you know. Uh, so like what he's doing is like writing a story about why why the uh, sort of like arrangement of global capitalism is actually really really great and it's not it's not really decadent at all and and like the real problem is that people lack confidence in that they think that it's decadent but he is in fact the just like epitome this article and the fact that uh in in the financial times it is just a a ready like means of like an editor would never like quash the idea that like ah yes uh, i see that you've made a uh yet another tired fall of rome comparison (laughs) that's that's not just uh boring and and uh, you know uh, atrocious and and tepid it's 
Fantastic. We want you to do that over and over again, roughly once a year for the next 17 years. Uh, I mean, like that, that is, uh, he's in the story. I love it. You've, you've referenced uh, six luxury food items. Can you, uh, can you get your quota of seven? Um, you Which know. He, like in any Dutch <laughs> painting, you want an oyster in there just to signify fertility. Uh, <laughs> well, well, and also, you know, we have a deal with rabbit. So can you make sure to prominently feature their electronic? Uh, wine opener in your story as well. <laughs> a little spawn con, you know. It's the the twenty first century. We've got to we've got to be nimble with our ad strategies and our revenue streams. You know what I mean? Well, with that. Well, Artie, thank you for that. Um, yes, pure, that was, pure yeah. beauty. <laughs> I'm thank now going to go purchase some quail eggs and you know pack my Cavendish, you know, and and just wait on someone. Hopefully, who will appear to wait on me? I'm, I'm excited <laughs> for it because maybe I've just been misunderstanding the discontents all along. Yeah, I love this new uh, Oscar Wilde era. If you say, if you say, if you say globalization in the mirror three times, it appears. <laughs> <laughs> it writes you a check. Apparently, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, thanks for bringing that in, Artie. That was a special treat. If you'd like to support the show and you want to hear some of our other episodes on vaccine IP that we talked about, as well as our interview with Jules from Monday, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. We do two episodes a week, so that is the only way to get access to all of the bonus episodes. Yep. And uh, with that, I think we'll call it a day. Patrons will catch you on Monday in the patron feed in the patron feed and everyone else will see you next week. Yep. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Great. Goodbye.
Yeah, like a just a oh, what's in this room? Oh, uh, just razor wire, maggots. <laughs> <laughs> Inside, was, um, outside shoes. I kept I kept thinking about this, knowing that uh, David Sentner, who uh, is yeah, he he and his wife run that anti-vax school. Learning that David Sentner got his money out of being a, uh, as the New York Times called it, quote, former electronic highway tolling entrepreneur. (laughs) And, you know, I just was thinking to myself, infrastructure is so important, guys. You know, it's really, it's, it's actually quite important. Uh, can't, can't simply be left to the private sector or to, uh, public private partnerships, or you get this guy. You get you get the school from Suspiria through public private partnerships. Basically, my father started this company with a simple electronic dog <laughs> collar. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, oh man. god! Okay, 